you know, I was despondent. It's the most horrifying thing I've ever experienced. I was having these really, really, really severe suicidal thoughts. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. I'm Al Levin, your host. I'm excited tonight we have Kenny on the line. Kenny is an elementary school teacher and a mental health advocate. Kenny, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Al. Hey, I'm really uh, excited to talk to you tonight, um, particularly because we are going to be talking about a mental illness that you've lived with that from what I've been able to research, and I know you have a lot of research you want to share on it, which I think is awesome, but it is a much more common disorder and illness or and symptom of mental illnesses than than I was ever aware of, and that is depersonalization and derealization disorder. Yes. Come to find dissociative disorders um, affect about 10% of the population. That's what the most recent data is showing. I suffered with mine for eight years without knowing what it was. I didn't find out what it was till I had recovered. Um, no doctors ever diagnosed me. I was seeing them consistently throughout the whole thing, whether it be for physical symptoms or mental symptoms, and none of them were ever able to tell me anything about it. Yeah, and that is a piece that I read that it can be incredibly difficult to diagnose and people live with it for a long time. And like you said, even going to the doctors and not having it diagnosed. I also read that it's the third most common uh, psychological symptom of mental illness next to depression and anxiety. I'm pretty sure that was a statistic you had shared with me. Yes, sir, it is. Um, I actually kind of disagree that it's difficult to diagnose. Um, they just aren't trained on it. Uh, when I finally saw it, I read one article and I was like, this is it. This is, you know, what has caused so many difficulties uh, throughout life for the past eight years and recently and things like that. One article. Wow. So before we get into specifically more about the mental illness and, and such, can you tell us a little bit about you? Would you say you had a pretty typical upbringing? Yeah, fairly. I mean, my parents are divorced. That's never fun for any kid to go through. But, you know, as much as they may think I do, I don't really hold it against them. I've grown up and moved on. How old were you when they got divorced? I was nine. Okay. And did you have siblings? Yeah, I have three siblings. One's an older half-brother, so he wasn't involved in that divorce. Um, okay. My dad was previously married before my mom. Um, and then I have an older sister and a younger brother. Okay. And pretty tight family? I guess it depends on who you ask. I, I always thought so growing up. Okay. Uh, school was cool for you. Were you um, into athletics or any social groups? Uh, I grew up playing a lot of sports. Baseball is really big in my family. So I played for six years and then I stopped for some of the school sports. So I was playing like basketball and volleyball, doing track. And then I pretty poorly played a couple years of football in high school. Okay, cool. Um, but yeah, so for me, the, the, the big thing was just uh, 
lot of social anxiety growing up. You know, that's just the nature of it. If it wasn't that, it would be another thing and something I've worked on as I've gotten older. So, Would you say you dealt with social anxiety even as a young age? Yeah, for sure. Okay, and can you describe what that was like? Um, you know, I will say that that was, uh, from what I have learned, was a product of the divorce. You know, there was just... There, you know, just any kid will go through uncomfortable moments at home. Um, I don't blame my parents for anything because if it's not something, it's another thing. And I would say that the home life wasn't necessarily conducive to breeding a lot of self-esteem or self-confidence. Okay. And that impacted you as far as socially interacting and engaging with other kids your age? Yeah. Can you talk a bit about that? Like, was it just difficult for you to engage in conversations and make friends or tell us a little bit about how that anxiety played out with peers? Uh, just a lot of insecurities. Um, you know, always worried about what I was saying, what was coming out of my mouth. Um, I had a lot of energy. Um, you know, I always liked myself. I always had a lot of like inner confidence, but I had trouble projecting it outwardly. Um, you know, so it just ended up being awkward dumb kid stuff right at what point did you start to have any kind of mental health symptoms that you think may be related to the depersonalization derealization disorder uh so this one was you know uh, a very clear onset and i know for some other people it may not be as severe significant as recognizable um because one of the other dissociative disorders is dissociative disorder not otherwise specified which kind of is the catch-all so you can have one symptom but not the other and that's actually the most common but this was my sophomore year of college and it's a stress-based disorder just anxiety stress things like that and I'm working almost full-time I was going to school full-time you have your own personal life stuff going on um just a lot of stress and um I started having these really uh crazy headaches it was like a tunnel vision, you know, a fogginess. And so I went to the doctor and I was like, hey, something's wrong. Can you, can you tell me what's going on? You know, I, I can't concentrate on anything. I have these headaches, um, you know, a lot of anxiety, stuff like that. And it was very much like, I don't, I don't know. Um, I, here's an SSRI and get out of my office. Here's a mood stabilizer. Um, I was there multiple times. I had blood tests done. Um, when you say and, multiple times, was it like, here's your medication, come back in six months or come back in a couple of weeks and check in with us? Yeah, it was like that. Um, not six months, more of a couple of weeks. Um, and then we would try different medicine. I think I tried three. I tried at least two, maybe okay. three, but I'm really not big on um, medication by any means. And, you know, a lot of the... Um, statistically it's not very effective you know you go through one and you go through another and you find one that maybe finally works but it doesn't actually work um, so so as a sophomore in college did you take those medications kind of begrudgingly and and did you share with your family what was going on yeah i mean i'm not above um you know like if i this will help me i'm gonna try it um and so it wasn't as begrudgingly it was you know I don't really like medicine, but hey, if this will help, you know, this is very uncomfortable. I'm not, you know, I don't really feel like myself. I can't 
function in school, stuff like that. From so, the from how you were feeling, not from the medication. Right. Right. So you so were I, willing to give it a shot. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it was uh, not pleasant. Nightmares, uh, anxiety, uh, trouble sleeping, stuff like that. And that, again, is symptoms of what you were experiencing prior to the medicine that they were trying to treat. No, that was the medicine. Oh, okay. I so was, the... I was uh, very uncomfortable with the headaches and ability to focus, whatnot. Um, you know, I had to take some time off of school. I took a couple years off because, you know, the symptoms never went away. So it was just continuously hard for me to focus. Um, I just had to learn to cope with it and get used to it. But and the um, medications weren't helping at all? No. Okay. So I just, uh, you know, I, I gave it time and I learned to live with it and got back to doing my own thing. Had, had I known that I would end up eight years later where I ended up, I would have kept trying harder to find out what it was. Right, right. But instead you, you took a year off of, or you, you left college and then did you get work in the meantime? While you were yeah, still I was with these I symptoms? was working the whole time. Um, okay, I took a little bit of time off at the very beginning just because it was such a severe onset. But yeah, I took some time off. You know, relaxed, kind of dealt with the the stress. Um, so I took some of my personal stuff off my plate. I took school off my plate, and slowly I kind of started getting back in, going part time, and then slowly ramping up as time went on. Okay. And in the meantime, still trying to figure out your symptoms or trying to live with them. It sounds like. Yeah, and and honestly, I would have um, gotten up every single day for the rest of my life with those headaches if, you know, we'll call it my Goldilocks zone, if it had stayed within that area, you know, because the majority of the past eight years has been incredible. Um, really good friends. I've had a lot of good, I have a lot of stability around me, love my family. You know, I'm generally a very happy, straightforward person, you know, stable, got a good head on my shoulders, college educated, etc. So tell us what happens happened with the symptoms. It sounds like they it continued to get worse and worse. Um yeah, and I didn't know why because it happened slowly over 8 years. So after the initial bout with the doctors and they're saying, "Oh no, you're healthy. We don't know what's wrong." I kind of stopped looking for it. And I wasn't in a bad place, you know, uh, friends, I was getting back in school, playing video games, playing fantasy football, you know, lots of it, life was good. I went to China. I lived in China for four months the past in the past year. Wow. So, cool. Yeah, just so it sounds like so it sounds like you were living with symptoms and you were it wasn't negatively impacting your life. You were able to still enjoy the things you enjoyed. You were able to still travel and so forth. Yeah, and and initially, but as time went on, um, I would say 2014 is when I started having some of my fatigue. Um, I went to an event with some buddies in Colorado, and at the hotel, I remember having a really hard time sleeping, and it just kind of continued from there. It wasn't as severe as it got at the end, but that was the first time I remember were not being still, able to sleep very well. Were you still taking medication? No, I, I stopped that. It didn't help. It gave me nightmares, trouble sleeping, et cetera, so I stopped. How long were you on meds in the end, would you say, at that point? Uh, a few months. Okay, so so most of those eight years you're, you're talking about were no medications and, and no therapy? Uh, I did try uh, a therapist at the beginning, but again, it wasn't 
you know, it wasn't necessarily that I needed therapy. I needed somebody to tell me what was going on, what, what was happening with this disorder, what, how is my brain interacting? What might I be able to expect in eight years? Um, and you know, maybe I have personally, I'm not going to take anything away from anybody else. I have personally never found therapy to be helpful. Um, I'm generally self-aware, pretty upfront. I don't, um, what's the word? Uh, suppress things. You know, I just know myself well. And maybe if I didn't have that, there would have been other things I needed to address, like things for my anxiety. But in terms of the disorder, was not helpful. Right. So you realized in 2014 symptoms got worse. You you realized you couldn't sleep at all when you were out on the trip with in Colorado. And then from that point, symptoms continued to progress, it sounds like. Yeah. And it wasn't at all, um, but it definitely got worse and kind of became at all. Um, okay. Despite melatonin, sleep aids, stuff like that. I never went to the big ones like um, Ambien or anything like that. I've heard some pretty scary stuff, but. Yeah. Any other symptoms other than the lack of sleep, which is huge, by the way. I mean, if you're not sleeping well, everybody yeah. knows that incredibly negatively impacts one's mental health, whether you're diagnosed with a mental illness or not. Yeah. Um, so essentially, this disorder impacts your limbic system. There are a couple areas of the brain that I'd like to talk about, um, namely the default mode network, the task positive or central executive network the salience network, and then your limbic system. And the limbic system kind of works with all of them. But your limbic system is your emotional brain. Um, So that's where your emotions come from and things like that. And it has an area called the hypothalamus that is responsible for a lot of hormone stuff, um, including your circadian rhythm. So in this disorder, your limbic system becomes underactive. And so when your hypothalamus is underactive, you're going to have trouble sleeping. You're going to have fatigue. Um, you're going to end up having muscle pains, et cetera, which all came into effect within that uh, eight years. To to what degree for you? Uh, very, a very significant degree um, in that last year. Uh, well, so I started having trouble sleeping, you know, despite exercising and things like that. And it was really natural uh, the way it happened. Because, you know, I ended up going to an office job at one point while I was still in school. And, you know, you end up sitting down all day. You know, you could still be exercising, but you're not exercising like you were when you were in high school and playing sports all the time and things like that. So you say, oh, wow, I just must be really out of shape. When in reality, something else is happening to you. But, you know, you continue exercising. I ended up leaving that job because, you know, I ended up feeling so miserable. It got to a point where... I was not, you know, I was, I was miserable. I was depressed. Um, I wasn't feeling any emotions. Um, and I quit that. I addressed some of the issues. I had some stomach stuff going on. Um, went to the doctor. He referred me to a gastroenterologist. Um, tried to figure it out cause my, ener- I had no energy at all. Like absolutely none. And, uh, you know, had a colonoscopy, trying to address the issues, you know, trying to take care of myself, found nothing, walked away, um, quit the job, started exercising more heavily, um, you know, trying to get back these pieces of myself that I was slowly losing over time. And then that's when the fatigue set in. And 
that was pretty pretty rough uh because with fatigue naturally comes the ability to injure yourself while you're exercising if your muscles aren't getting the rest they need sleep etc you're going to start hurting yourself and that's what happened you know slowly i hurt my back and then eventually i ended up um blowing out my neck i uh herniated a disc and things got pretty severe from there wow that sounds rough can you explain a little bit um, what it means to suffer from fatigue? In my mind, fatigue is tired, but I, I feel, I sense that there, it's much more than just being tired or low energy. I mean, it's just that all the time, 100% of the time. Um, at school, you're tired and you can't pay attention. You know, I, was, I had my head down on the desk all, like, all the time at school. Um, really? And literally sleeping or just like, just you needed no, to No, I couldn't sleep. <laughs> Right. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's even when you're able to get sleep, you still wake up tired. Right. But most of the time you aren't really getting sleep. So you're just tired on top of being tired. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it just, it, your muscles start hurting your, it impacts your relationships. It impacts your patients. Right. Uh, starts isolating you, things like that. And that's, that's a big one with this. This is a very isolating disorder it takes away a lot of the ability to interact with people socially things like that right and it sounds like a couple of pretty serious injuries you had to deal with yeah i mean the uh the disc was the biggest one if i didn't have my disc i think i'd be fine physically right now and i mean it, it's it's healed technically i can go and do all the stuff that i want to but uh it's always easier to re-injure something especially a disc because the uh the cartilage there doesn't regrow naturally. Okay, right. So did these injuries bring you back to the doctor and was mental health discussed at that time? Uh, no. So like I said, I stopped kind of addressing the headaches, but okay. every single time I went to the doctor, I would still check off all the available symptoms that they had on the patient intake forms. Um, I would write down that I still had headaches. I checked off fatigue, uh, depression, they're transient suicidal thoughts with it. You know, it's just it, you, you're miserable. You don't enjoy anything. Stuff is flat. Um, so it's like, what's, it's a, what's the point kind of thing. I've, I've been there. I've done that. I bought the t-shirt. I've so what's is that how anyway? you would, is that how you would describe your depression? Just like low grade, um, not f being able to feel different feelings or did your depression manifest in a different way? No, that's what it was. It's apathy. Okay. Apathy for sure. And it's a very far cry from, you know, 19 years old and those first couple years of this to getting to 26, 27, 28 and just how much you are like really unable to enjoy stuff. You're right. grumpy, irritated, cynical, and yeah. it's, it is recognized, you know, uh, there, I am, was actively continuously taking steps to address these things, whether it was addressing the physical problems so that I continue could continue working out. Because um, working out was my coping me mechanism. That's how I maintained an attitude. It's how I maintained patience. You know, when I was upset or something like that, I'd go and work out. And so when I blew out my back, that was taken away from me. So that's why I got pretty, pretty significant. Right. And then all of the depressive symptoms and, and others probably increased then. Yeah. you're injured and dealing with that in addition to all these other things going on. Yeah. So when was it that you finally heard about 
depersonalization, derealization, and and when were you diagnosed? I've never been diagnosed. Oh, you um, haven't? Okay. No, but it's it is literal like the only thing that checks off every single thing that I've experienced. When I first read that article, it was like I wrote the article. Everything that had come out of my mouth for the past four months, for the past eight years, everything I'd thought to myself was in these things that I started reading. And the artwork that I saw from other people that suffered from it was the only option. And so were you trying to research what was going on with you and that's how you bumped into this article or had a doctor shared it with you or how did, how did you come about that? Yeah. So, um, when it resolved, it was not, it has not been, it still isn't pretty. It was, you, you slowly have your emotional personality taken away from you over eight years. And then one day all of it's given back to you. Just, you know, every, you know, when it resolved, I felt like me, like, like eight years ago, me. And Um, so this resolved on its own? No, I was putting in a lot of effort into it. And once you realized what you believed you had, then no, I was addressing the pain. I was, I I had no idea what I was fighting the entire time. Um, for eight years, I was just, you know, trying to, and because I knew that even with these headaches, I never felt like the way I felt, you know, from 25 onwards. Um, right. I, so I was like, okay, you know, it's this fatigue and it's this pain that's causing me to not be able to sleep. And so if I can just start exercising more, try and get back to where I was before that, then maybe I'll stop feeling this miserable and then I'll feel comfortable being in a relationship again. I will be a better teacher. I will be able to focus. I can, you know, do a better job because I want to go to grad school. Um, so I can do a better job there because the state that I was in was, uh, very clearly not a pleasant state. Right. And so you believe that you resolved the issues through your exercise and w- what other ways did you overcome this? Uh, yeah, so it was a lot of exercise, but, you know, I, I would never, I really want to take away my back injury, but the back injury made me start heavily researching how to repair the body, um, things that we know about um, or things that they're studying, and it made me change the way I was working out. Before that, you know, I was lifting heavier and things like that. And afterwards, I started doing more um, high energy, like hit kind of stuff. So high inter- high intensity interval training. So lots of sweating, um, uh, high heart rate kind of stuff. So I changed the way I worked out. I ended up changing my diet. Uh, so I started doing intermittent fasting. So I started with the eight-hour window. And so that's, you get an eight-hour window, you can eat whatever you want with that, but you can have zero calories outside of that eight-hour window. Right. Um, and immediately, I started noticing improvements. Um, and after that, I started upping it, so I started doing extended fasting. And so I went for a day without food. And I did that, I think, a couple times, maybe three, and then... I went to my first like longer fast, which was about three and a half days. 
and with, with no food, no water. No, definitely water, just no okay. calories. Gotcha. Yeah, and honestly, after that, I felt great, better than I had in years. And so, based off of you know a lot of the research that I've done and things like that, it is very arguable that fasting is a very effective way to treat this. And then in February, so this resolved March 11th of this past year. You so have a March specific 11th. date that you think it resolved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is a, it's very specific. Um, and how is that? Like, uh, I mean, you woke up on that day and just felt great and like all of a sudden everything was back to normal. Uh, I mean, I, I know you had put in a. Uh, I know you put in a bunch of uh, time, effort, and work clearly, which I think is huge. Because I've always said I think recovering from a mental illness takes, or living with a mental illness takes effort and time. And clearly, it took the time, right? Eight years, and you put in a ton of effort. But it still surprises me. So I don't want to discount it at all, especially all of the effort you put into it. But it still sounds pretty wild to be like, March 11th, that was the day I beat it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'll go over the stuff that I was doing before that, and then I'll get into March 11th. But okay. uh, So February, I did a five-day fast. And that time, I just included more supplements like magnesium, potassium, because um, with the three-day fast, I had a lot of muscle cramps. And so, you know, anybody listening, make sure you do research. Make sure you extend the – if you do do this, make sure you extend the days – um, slowly, you know, I went to intermittent to 24 hours to three days to five days. So, um, but yeah, I did five days. I was also doing physical therapy. I was getting biweekly massages that I, uh, they're therapeutic massages. So they're the ones that like really pull on you. Um, I was doing trigger point injections to address some of the pain that I was having, uh, chiropractic care. I was still seeing doctors to make sure that my back was okay. Um, and then I was just exercising really heavily. Uh, but yeah, so February, it was like, I threw all of that in the same pot, you know, the physical therapy, the massages, trigger point injections, fasting, all of it was going at the same time. And, um, March 11th, you know, like you said, you woke up and you, uh, felt normal and you felt great. It was more, I woke up and I felt normal and I felt awful. In what way? Um, there had been a lot of, uh, the, uh, the past, that past year was very, um, very emotional. There were some very significant emotionally negative things that happened. Um, a lot of emotionally positive things that happened. And I would say throughout that eight years, cause most of the eight years was great. I was able to cope with it. I had pillars around me. I had good friends and family. But after I hurt my back, I couldn't cope with it the same. And this, so the, this disorder does not let you meet your emotional needs because it decreases activity in the limbic system, your emotional brain. And so on March 11th, all of the things throughout that past year or eight years rather that I had not been able to emotionally process started happening then. So it was, a uh, has been, is a very negative experience because it is like you didn't get to emotionally process or deal with these things 
when they happened. You didn't emotionally get to have a say in in what happened. And so now emotionally you're dealing with the repercussions of it. So I want to make sure I understand. Uh, it sounds almost like you came to a point on March 11th where all of this emotional buildup that you were incapable of responding to or dealing with just came in a huge tidal wave on March 11th. And I mean, I just kind of envision you like sitting in bed, like just crying from all of this emotional buildup. And I'm wondering if my picture here is way off base or if you could describe it a bit more to people. Um, so like I said, uh, I, uh, level-headed, uh, college educated very much enjoy my life. I love my life. I have a lot that I want to do. Um, I have a lot of goals, um, generally consider myself to be a very healthy person and, you know, nobody is without faults. I am very aware of, um, things that I struggle with mentally, things like that. But I have, you know, I've never had any suicidal thoughts, never a day in my life, maybe transient, like, oh, wow, this really sucks. It would be easier, you know, especially throughout all this, you know, not having, being able to emotionally express yourself or enjoy things. But I never a day in my life have had uh, any sort of suicidal thoughts. And on March 11th, I have never been as sick, like mentally, uh, physically, emotionally, as I was on that day. Like, you know, Friday I was at school teaching. Um, it was the first day before, or the last day before spring break. And I was running around with the kids. I went out to football practice because I was coaching football with um, some of my teacher buddies. Uh, I was running around with them. We were having a great time. And, you know, Monday I was over a trash can with anxiety the uh when i started fasting i think i was 155 and at the end of the fasting i was around 140 and so that's a, from a period of like august to march so 15 pounds from august to march n not bad you know not bad weight loss and it's healthy weight loss uh, with this uh within the first 2 weeks i was uh, 125 pounds wow uh i had not been 125 pounds since before i was in high school how tall are you? Uh, five nine. Whew. Yeah. Um, the you know the only thing that I can compare it to is you know when I was younger I heard a story about this blind guy that was able to regain his vision through some new surgery, and I haven't really been able to prove that. I can't find anything that um, confirms this, but I heard he ended up killing himself because of the sensory overload, and that's that's the only thing I can compare this to. It felt like withdrawals, you know, you spent eight years slowly becoming this other person, you know, this is your normal, this is how you become. And it's not necessarily because you've changed or because you've become this person. It's because this disorder that you've been fighting for eight years unknowingly that was never diagnosed 
has been changing you involuntarily. And now the changes are done, like you feel like yourself again. It was a pretty big day for you. Yeah, I, uh, it was, uh, you know, more than a pretty big day. It's been ongoing, unfortunately. But yeah, so essentially I had spent a lot of time looking into how to address my physical pain. You know, I was learning more about the body, how to kind of address inflammation, how to resolve this so that, you know, I would uh, stop feeling so negative all the time. And so when it resolved, I, you know, I was despondent. And it's the most horrifying thing I've ever experienced. Um, It is, you know, it's so hard to put into words considering, you know, you're the only one experiencing it. And out of the entire eight years, it got me, it resolved when I was absolutely the most emotionally vulnerable. You know, I had graduated within the last year. A lot of emotional stuff happened. You know, I lived in China. You know, I spent four months in, and I I don't remember a lot of it. Um, I, so yeah, I lived in China. I went to Korea and Thailand. I graduated. I moved to a different city. So within that city, I didn't have a lot of people that I knew. Um, my coworkers are awesome. They're very much friends more than coworkers, but you know, they don't have the longstanding relationships as that you do with friends at home or things like that. Now this, you know, just through the nature of it, you know, my girlfriend, my ex-girlfriend is involved in this. And it sucks for her. This is, you know, this is a lose-lose situation for me. I hate drama. I think this whole thing is fucking stupid. Like, it's ridiculous that I was unable to, when I walked into the doctor's office eight years ago and said something's wrong, that I was unable to get help. You know, and I won't invalidate her feelings because it definitely affected her negatively. And it sucks because she was crazy important to me, um, the most important person at the time. And it's a lose-lose situation for me in general, just being here talking about the things that I am. Like I said, I like to keep any significant things within that circle because sharing too much about things like this, like, you know, people look at you differently. And she doesn't deserve to be a part of this. You know, just being involved in the whole thing is a loss for her, but let alone having any personal details shared about her on a podcast is kind of rough. But, you know, at that time, me and my girlfriend had just broken up. And... A lot of it was because of, you know, what at the time, because I was addressing pain, like I said. I, so at the time, we thought this was chronic pain. And so we ended up breaking up because I was having a really hard time dealing with it and everything like that. And there were some very 
uh, significant emotionally negative things that happened in that year as well. And so we had just broken up. I am not in my hometown. I'm not by any family. I don't have any close friends with me. The Just in every single way throughout that eight years, I was the most vulnerable I could have been. So one piece I really want to get a little clarification on is the, I think you use the word resolved, like the depersonalization, derealization disorder resolved on March 11th. That day was incredibly difficult, and it sounds like it's been difficult since then. And I'm wondering if you can explain what's, if the mental illness, the disorder has resolved, what has been the difficulty since it's resolved? Right. Um, so good question. Like I said, your emotional needs can't be met. Um, you, I call, I started calling this nature's lobotomy. Um, lobotomies are famous for severing connections often from the frontal lobes. Your frontal lobes are, um, important for your consciousness. So when you sever connections from things from the frontal lobes, you have trouble with your patient's temperament, personality, your apathetic, stuff like that. And so with this, uh, like I said earlier, the, there's the default mode network, and that's kind of your sense of self. So for you, your default mode network is Al. For me, my default mode network is Kenny. And it works homeostatically with that task positive network that we talked about. And the task positive network is just active when you're concentrating on something. And so when you, when one is active, the other becomes underactive and vice versa. But that limbic system is connected to both of them. But if that connection is severed, if that limbic system is underactive, you are not going to have your emotions. You're not going to be able to react to things. And so for eight years, I was slowly losing my my emotions. And there's a quote somewhere. There's an article in The Atlantic about uh, depersonalization. I just need to find it. Okay, yeah. So it says, we think of a self as an essential thing, um, a soul or an ego that everyone has and is aware of. Um, but scientists, and that's the big one, that's the big one. Scientists and philosophers have been telling us for a while now that the self isn't quite as it seems. Um, psychologist Dr. Bruce Hood writes that there is no center in the brain where the self is generated, uh, debated through the default mode network, but they kind of all work together. What we experience is a powerful depiction generated by our brains for our benefit. Brains make sense of data that would otherwise be overwhelming. Experiences are fragmented episodes unless they are woven together in a meaningful narrative. And that's the big part of this. Emotionally, I did not get to weave together all these things that happened in a meaningful narrative. Because, you know, after eight years of this, and, you know, the, the limbic system is dried up like a raisin, uh, you know, after being underactive for so long slowly it's it's eaten away at you and you see um limbic system atrophy or degradation in other um other psychiatric disorders the big ones are dementia alzheimer's other dementias etc the first thing that's usually attacked is the limbic system 
which is why you'll see people with mood swings, um, trouble forming memories, retaining memories, um, recalling, uh, not so much recalling memories at the earlier stages. Um, but you'll see it in, uh, after the first clinical significant event in multiple sclerosis. So that attacks the limbic system as well as a Korsakoff syndrome, which is, uh, a vitamin B1 deficiency. It's often seen with alcoholics. And uh, so, yeah, basically, emotionally, all these really, really, really important events, emotionally, I didn't get a say in them. Um, you know, emotionally, I was, you know, I was very much living as less than myself. And so when... After eight years, you view yourself differently, right? Yeah. You're going to be a, you're going to be a different person. So these things that are happening, you have a place for them with the person that you've become. And on March 11th, it was like, okay, so now my emotional brain is active again. We don't have places for these things. Dear, there were some really, really important events. Um, just within that last year, outside of the rest of the eight years, there's only one event that I, that really doesn't sit well with me. Um, so it's not like this completely destroyed me or, you know, made me turn away from a lot of the things that define me or like life was unlivable, but you know, there's some really significant events. And even if the same decision was made by all of yourself, when you're in such, you know, after eight years, you're in such a fragile emotional state. When those same things happen to you, they can become extremely negative emotionally once you're able to have a say in them. Right. So I hear you saying for eight years, a lot of different things happened. You couldn't kind of piece together the emotions and how they interacted and were woven together because they probably weren't woven together given the fact that you were living with depersonalization and derealization. And then comes the day where you believe the disorder was resolved and now you're sitting with all these emotions and all of these past incidents that you weren't able to process. And now you've been going through this process of assessing, evaluating, and, and under trying to understand all of these different emotions that you're now feeling again? Yeah, all at once. Right. Every single one of them. Um, March 11th, what year were we talking? This year. This year? Yeah. So seven months or so you've been trying to live and deal with some of the decisions you had made in the past when you were not emotionally fit and trying to process through everything. Yeah. Um, okay. And so, you know, those emotional pillars aren't in place. And so you make the decisions that you make may be different. Maybe they're right. the same. Um, they might be the same. Um, but when, you know, you're not, all of you isn't getting a say in what's going on. Even if they were the same there, you don't perceive them as that they would have been the same. Right. And and it's a daily struggle for you to deal with these emotions and so forth and emotions from the past? It has 
it's it's been awful. Um, you know, what like do you I mean said, when you when you say awful, like yeah. I mean, you're thinking about them all the time, or you you can't get oh, out of bed because you're thinking about one hundred percent of the time. No matter. Uh, so I saw uh, four doctors and two therapists. So I saw two two general practitioners, a psychiatrist, and a neurologist. In these uh, past seven months. Yeah. Okay. So and you're then, still working at this. Uh, well, that was in like the first four months. <laughs> okay. And then I saw a CBT a counselor and an EMDR counselor. Um, talked to them about all the signs and symptoms, what I was experiencing, and was not any help. They, uh, you know, very much continued to just kind of try to shove pills down my throat. That that didn't work. Uh, I tried another SSRI. I tried Lexapro, and I if if I wasn't worried about the bill, I would have ended up in the hospital from the um, like just extreme anxiety that it gave me. And that was within the first week, the first five days, on the lowest dose they could have given me, so five milligrams of it, and the reactions to it were so severe. Did you share with all of these doctors that you believe you were living with depersonalization, derealization disorder? And if so, how did they respond to that? I didn't find out about this till July. So no, I didn't. I was going in asking what was going on. I, okay. when, I went to, when I went to the neurologist, you know, I've been asking for eight years what's going on. Right, right. <laughs> but I went to the neurologist and I told him, you know, it felt like I had some sort of dementia because my my memory was so awful I couldn't concentrate on anything there were times where I forgot you know I was questioning how old I was you know just really really bad memory um and just all of a sudden on March 11th you know I felt present I felt like myself I felt like I had control I wasn't grumpy or irritated anymore you know I was calm like my body was relaxed I could sleep again everything that you know I needed for the past eight years was all back and I just felt awful um, and so I went into the neurologist and I was like, you know, it really felt like I had some sort of dementia and keep in mind, I didn't say, I think I have dementia. Like I went in with signs and symptoms, but he heard the word dementia and like genuinely scolded me for even bringing it up. And I'm not editorializing. My mom was there like completely unacceptable behavior from a doctor. Right. And I was, I was right on the money, you know, being that both. Uh, result in atrophy of the limbic system at least in my saying it felt like dementia i was correct and how about the other doctors did they respond any differently uh no it was you know i had blood tests done this time too and it was just you're you're healthy you can take this ssri this anxiolytic this mood stabilizer but you know get out of our office otherwise and tell us about how you came upon the article that you had read about depersonalization, derealization disorder. Right. So like I had said, I was studying a lot about the physical body and when March 11th happened and, you know, and I was, I was very honest with the doctors and the counselors and uh, most of my family, you know, cause I'm not, I'm not really bashful. So, you know, I told my mom and my brother and some friends about everything that was going on. And, you know, I was having these really, really, really severe suicidal thoughts because what was happening was so intensely negative, just 
in every single way. You know, all like these memories that I had, I, I don't want to take them with me for another 60 years, you know? Right. Um, cause they're so critical to the, to these emotional pillars that I didn't have at the time. And, you know, so I told all of them about it and really it was just, well, you're healthy. Don't know what to tell you, dude. And, oh yeah, so, sorry, I kind of lost track of my thoughts. But yeah, so it was super negative. And so I just spent all this time learning about, you know, the physical body. I don't want to kill myself. Like, I really, really love my life. I, you know, have worked really hard at building the things that I want around myself. So I poured myself into like trying to learn about the brain and seeing if there are a way for me to um, overcome these things and process them, help myself, um, whether it's medicines or um, certain exercises or meditation, things like that. And so for four months I did that. And like I said, I was initially addressing pain. So when all this resolved, I was like, wow, did the, you know, did the pain put me in these positions? Did it affect me so negatively that I was not able to have a say in all this stuff? And so I started looking into pain and its effects on the brains and, and it's very significant. Uh, Chronic pain affects your brain uh, very significantly. Uh, We talked about that default mode network and anything positive or negative, as long as it has to do with how you view yourself, it goes through that network from my understanding. It's basically the filter. So if you have pain, it's going to go and affect your um, frontal lobes, stuff like that, because it affects your perception of how you see yourself, the world around you. And so I started looking into that. I started looking into medicines and four months, uh, I finally came across uh, an article. Um, I think I was looking into ketamine therapy, but I may have just been browsing Reddit. Um, And I came across an article. I started reading it and I was like, this is it. It was kind of... um, just by happenstance. And what was it that you picked up on the article that made you think, aha, this is exactly what I've been living with for eight years? Um, have you seen Get Out? Yes. So you know the sunken place? Uh, I don't recall. When uh, the main character, he's talking with the mom in the living room and she's stirring the tea and she kind of like launches him inside of himself. Okay, yep. Um, That was the best way I could describe it. And that was, it wasn't described exactly like that, but basically like watching yourself from inside your head, like uh, like you're on autopilot, like you are a passenger, like you're not fully in control, tunnel vision. You know, there are lots of different ways that people have described it, but they're all pretty much the same when it comes down to it. So it was essentially an article that described what depersonalization, derealization disorder is, and you aligned with what they described as the symptoms and therefore made that connection that, aha, this is, this is it. Yeah. And so then I started looking into a lot more. I found more articles. Um, I found um, other communities, things like that, and all of it. You know, it's, it's, uh, it is... 
universal in the way that it makes people feel, essentially. Um, and uh, when people find out about it, you know, they're pretty vocal. I know that Adam Duritz, the lead singer for the Counting Crows, suffers with it. There's a rapper named Logic that uh, suffers with it. And a lot of times it's transient. So it'll happen for a moment or like a week or two, and then it'll resolve. And sometimes it just doesn't resolve. But like Bo Burnham, who's a comedian, comedian, and uh, Kevin Love, uh, plays for the Cavs, have experienced it. They talk about it in some of the things that they've done. And do they say that there is treatment for the disorder? No. So there is... Um, it is, the average age of onset is 16. The number of years on average it takes to get an accurate diagnosis is 10 years. And there are zero cures or treatments. Not even treatments. Correct. Um, some, uh, if you know what you're targeting, uh, they've said that cognitive behavioral therapy can be helpful. But, you know, the effect sizes are not super significant. Um, a combination of SSRIs with uh, another medicine called lamotrigine has been shown to be effective, but generally not clinically significant. Uh, maybe not clinically, but not significant. And a lot of times people will try SSRIs and things like that and they'll make it worse because um, with SSRIs, they will reduce activity within the amygdala, which is your emotional processing center that's real big in PTSD. So and in it's PTSD, already compromised. Exactly. With PTSD, your amygdala is often overactive. And so you're having a lot of anxiety and um, things like that. But a big reason why so many people with PTSD, so past traumas or significant amounts of stress in their lives, et cetera, will experience this is because it's such a shock to that system in the moment that it happens that the amygdala becomes underactive as a way of coping with it. Right. And that's why, so if you, if you look at the data, antidepressants don't work. They, and I, I you know, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to take away things from people. They work for some people. They help them feel better. Um, you know, I'm not here to say don't take antidepressants, but, you know, generally studies show that their effects are not clinically significant. They are more effective at treating anxiety symptoms than depression. And a lot of times with anxiety or that depression, you will be kind of all over the place. And so when you take an SSRI and it reduces activity in that amygdala, it's kind of going to numb you a little bit emotionally so that you can deal with what's going on. And there are other interactions too, like it, uh, so it, uh, blocks the reuptake of serotonin, which is where the name comes from. And so it helps to reduce activity in your default mode network, which is where a lot of the serotonin is processed. And so every effective form of, uh, antidepressants reduces activity in that default mode network. Cause when it's overactive, there's a lot of rumination, negative self-talk, et cetera. Um, so meditation, cognitive behavioral therapy, antidepressants, all of it just help reduce activity in those, in the conscious center of your brain. So if you're still going through a challenge of dealing with all of these emotions, what are you currently doing to recover from what you're struggling with now? Uh, waiting. I don't know. Um, it sucks because all those things we just talked about, exercise, 
meditation, uh, medication, uh, therapy, going to see doctors, time, whatever else doesn't work because it, it just threw, it threw too much at me all at once. Like I, uh, you know, I'm pretty capable. I can, I feel like I can shoulder a lot, but you know, it, it threw way too much at me. And do you feel like you could go to a therapist or a doctor now that you believe, you know, what you had been experiencing for eight years and, and explain, I believe I've just, you know, this disorder that I've been living with DPDR has just been resolved. Now I'm dealing with an onslaught of emotions and, you know, living through decisions in the past that I've made while I was living with DPDR. And now I'm looking for some support. Um, do you think that might be helpful? Nope. Cause we were, we still talked about everything that happened before I knew what it was. I still talked about, um, all the emotions I was feeling, um, trying to work through the events and stuff like that. And, you know, I just, um, I think it's important that these, these events, you know, they're not like, I'm not super destructive or anything like that. They would not maybe otherwise be such negative events if they didn't happen in such uh, a negative state of mind, you know, if I was able to work on them at the time. But yeah, I don't think uh, it would help. I So, so essentially now you are... It sounds like you've almost given up on dealing with these and you're just living day to day hoping it'll pass. That's, that's tough. Um, you know, I, uh, when I can come up for water, I try and run with it big time. And like I said, I've never really found therapy to be effective. In this case, it could have possibly been effective had we known what it was, had I been able to, cause you know, like Kevin said, when you interviewed him, he doesn't have any resources. At least when he gets a diagnosis, he can look into it himself. He can educate himself, you know? Um, but now the, uh, the damage has been done and I don't find, you know, I've talked to people about it. I, it's, it's just tough. I find that my therapy is better done through action, which is a big reason why I'm here. You know, I'm not above recognizing that talking with you and trying to let other people know about this is not a form of therapy as well. But uh, I poured myself into a lot of the community. Uh, we started a, or another person started a, a Discord server. A um, it's like a, a program that people can get on and talk about different stuff. So this one was specifically um, for depersonalization. Depersonalization. God, I hate the name. Every time I say it, it's just like this super long, like 14-syllable <laughs> word that, that doesn't even do justice to how negative it is and how, uh, how it impacts people, you know. And I think if the medical community wants to 
gain some traction with it, they need to change their name to something that is more representative of what it is, you know? Um, but yeah, so I went onto that discord and within like the first two weeks, there were like over 350 people on there. I actually haven't been in a little bit cause you know, motivation's been tough, but most, most of them were kids. Right. Most of them were having some real negative thoughts. Most of them didn't have anybody to listen to or share their experiences with or people that understood them. Most of them didn't have any doctors that were able to tell them what was going on. They're worried that they were going to be stuck like that forever. Um, right. Suicidal thoughts from a lot of them, things like that. It's It wasn't great. So we poured ourselves into that. Um, you know, I started trying to make the website with the community. You know, obviously I poured myself into research and things like that uh, so that I could have a better understanding of what it was, why they happened, maybe ways to overcome them. So, you know, those, those things are my therapies. So it's not like I've been doing nothing since I stopped with the, the medical aspect of things. Right. But even that's tough. Um, cause you're, in the place that you are and you know despondent motivation becomes tough and so yeah there has been a good stretch where i've very much had trouble getting out of bed and and it's not even like mentally uncomfortable i am dizzy all the time i because it wasn't just um it wasn't just the mental stuff. Like all of a sudden on March 11th, there was a, like a major personality shift, you know, from apathetic and grumpy and things like that to like energetic and wanting to enjoy things and go out and do things. And, and that's really, really overwhelming. In addition to all the emotional things that were just thrust upon you, and I kept telling everybody, because initially I thought it was pain, but I was telling everybody, like, smells are super strong. Um, and I kept telling them my headaches, because that was a, the, the big thing. Um, I kept telling them my headaches were gone. And it was just, like, physically overwhelming, too. Like, I still struggle to have an appetite. Still, I've still, like, for seven months, I've felt, like, physically sick. Wow. And... So, do, do you think there's any possibility that your self-diagnosis is incorrect and that maybe it's something similar? I mean, a lot of mental illnesses kind of overlap and stuff. No, absolutely. They do overlap. And I understand the, the dangers in diagno um, um, diagnosing yourself and things like that. At the same time, you know, it's hard to advocate for yourself when one, you don't know what these things are. I'd never heard of this. Um, which is a shame considering, you know, it, it's the third most common symptom that people may experience outside of anxiety and depression. You think people should know about that. <laughs> but so I had never heard of this. It is abundantly clear that the medical medical community is not trained on these things, on diagnosing them. So you can't go in and advocate for yourself when you don't know what you're advocating for. You don't know what you're fighting against. Right. But no, there's, there's no way that it's, it's something else. Okay. I'm, I'm you positive. know, I was, I'm also curious about the, 
the statement of the third most common psychological symptom of a mental illness next to depression and anxiety. So it can be a symptom within depression, but not like depersonalization or derealization. Maybe I'm not sure could probably be a symptom of depression. So I wonder if that third most common psychological symptom is referring to it more as a symptom than a mental illness. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not the third most diagnosed mental illness. I guess um, I'm just trying to draw a distinction there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I'm not a doctor. I think that it can be both just like depression can be both. Right. You know, I have depressive symptoms sometimes, but yeah. I don't suffer from long-standing depression. Um, okay. This, yep. when, when it first started, I wasn't depressed. I was right. more anxious than depressed. I was stressed out. And slowly it became that depression. So depression became a symptom of this. Right. Um, I'm curious now, too, if you would ever consider the possibility that you are dealing with depression now after having resolved DPDR and dealing with this onslaught of emotions and trying to kind of resolve your past eight years and how difficult and challenging that is. And some of what you described that you're going through currently makes me curious and wonder if you are dealing with depression now at some level. Uh, at some level, it has probably gotten to that. But again, the depression is going to be a symptom of, you know, what what is very much a traumatic experience. So again, it's a symptom of what happened overall, you know? Right. But I guess if you're, no matter why you're dealing with it, or if it's a diagnosis or a symptom, if it's something that you have to now that you're faced with trying to resolve, like DPDR has been resolved and now you got to work at this depression. Possibly. It's just a thought I had as you describe some of how you're feeling now. Yeah, no. Um, I think I don't have to address any sort of depression. I have to address the things that happened, which I've been trying to do, but it's tough when all of it's thrown at you. Right. You know, having just having just said goodbye to someone who at the time was, you know, the most important person in your life, in addition to all of those those other things. And to be honest, the other things were probably were not even probably were worse at least in the way I perceive them at the moment. But, you know, you, you try to work on one of them and pack it away. And the other one kind of comes in or the other three come in and undo the work that you did on one. And it's just kind of cyclical like that. Cause it's also intertwined and, you know, you, you start to find a place for one of the things you start to pack it away and, and accept one of those things and it's it's just constantly uh, undone by the the other things 
And right. so you work on one of the other ones and, the, you know, it's, it, so it's just a matter of not necessarily addressing depression, which, you know, may be at this point, but it's a matter of getting past those things because once those things are gotten past, then, you know, I'm good to go. Like, uh, genuinely once, once I'm past those things, I'm good to go. But I've been unsuccessful at doing that so far. Right. Well, it sounds like you got your work cut out for you yet. Can you tell us, um, I know you just talked a little bit about some of the advocacy you're trying to do in educating people around DPDR. You do also have a website, correct? Outside the box project. Yeah, it's uh, otbproject.com. It is up right now. I don't know that it'll be up in three weeks just because uh, it's very much incomplete. A lot of the research that's been done, a lot of things from other people within the community. Um, so it's not necessarily my website. It's just a collaborative effort from everybody within that community uh, to talk about uh, statistics. So, you know, I probably won't be able to get to every statistic, unfortunately, um, within this podcast, but it goes over symptoms, um, personality traits that are susceptible to it, uh, people that are susceptible to it, uh, prevalence within certain populations, uh, prevalence overall. And so I, it's very much not done. I kind of got all the information. It's just a matter of, uh, not being lazy to uh, get it done so well i checked it out already and it looks pretty impressive to me thanks well hopefully by being out there and putting it out there like you're doing sharing your story like you're doing and educating people around dpdr hopefully uh you know people start to to look at themselves and look at these symptoms that they may be experiencing and understand that there could be an underlying chronic mental illness that they're dealing with yeah um what uh what piece of advice would you uh, would you give for somebody who may be experiencing some of the symptoms that you just described? Uh, you know, look into it, research it. That's a that was how I learned so much about it. I'll try to have the website up um, with as much of the information as possible, so that they can go over the statistics, look at their past live events, see if these, their symptoms match up with traumatic or stressful events and, uh, advocate for yourself. I know, I know I talked about how advocating for yourself is difficult, especially when, uh, you know, the medical community has not really addressed these disorders as a whole very well. You know, the, the fasting, I think really, really helped um, so I would look into that. I would look into addressing these stressors, maybe in other ways other than therapy or medicine. And if medicine and therapy are working, great, continue to do them. Maybe if they aren't working, continue to do them because, you know, it's a very holistic approach. You know, I wasn't just fasting. I wasn't just exercising. I was addressing a lot of symptoms with a lot of different things, you know? Yep. I think that's really true. Like oftentimes our recovery is a multifaceted approach and it sounds like you definitely were doing that as well. Well, Kenny, I want to thank you for your time. 
I want to thank you for your uh, advocacy around DPDR. I think if there were more people out advocating around DPDR, it wouldn't be such an uncommon, unusual name for people. Um, I've been doing this podcast for over two years, and it's the first time I have heard of this disorder. So I am uh, thrilled to meet you, and good luck working through you know, the pieces that are, are left now that uh, DPDR has been resolved. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Um, and best of luck in everything else you do. All right. Well, thank you very much and uh, stay healthy. You too. Thanks, Al. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.